Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. TheHearingConsultancy.ie Welcome to this week's Health and Fitness. Coming up this evening, obviously the weather's been like totally ridiculous. So that usually means we flock to the water in this country and many people in the Midlands will go to Loch Ree. We're going to talk to the volunteers that help keep those waters safe. They're celebrating a special anniversary. Ever considered throwing your leg over a horse? Novel, I know, but we'll take you to Offaly to talk lessons and plenty more. And we'll be investigating the merging of the Gaelic Games Associations. That's the GA, Camogie, Ladies Gaelic Football, it's happening. It's going to be a mammoth task and the Midlands academics are already on the case. You're going to hear from someone on the cutting edge of gender equality frontier. Right now, however, we're talking about loneliness. Did you know in a recent Europe-wide study, more than 20% of Irish people surveyed reported feeling lonely most or all of the time compared to a European average of 13%. Just think about that for a second. One in five of us have said that we feel lonely most or all of the time. Alone is the national organisation that supports older people to age at home. They say that the region they require the most interventions in is the Midlands. Grania Lochran is the Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer with Alone. I was speaking to her earlier today and firstly asked her for her reaction to these statistics. This is really stark and to be honest, what we see is that um, there's higher rates of older people living alone um, and those are the people who are most likely to need alone services. We of course work with all older people but where older people are living on their own and older people um, of advanced age so of you know 80s 90s um as opposed to 60s 70s um they would be the cohort that most need our assistance so we tend to work with higher numbers in the midlands okay so it, it are we talking about demographics being predominantly the reason do we think behind the the higher numbers of interventions for a loan in the midlands so the demographics are definitely a part of it i think there's a lot of elements here both in terms of service provision in the Midlands, uh, in terms of the demographics, um, there's a range of factors that somebody that might bring somebody to a loan for the first time. Sure. And because we support people across loneliness, health, finance, uh, etc., um, there's a range of different things that would feed into it. Okay, because obviously just because demographics lead to a certain situation, it doesn't mean then then that therefore is a situation that doesn't need solving one way or the other. So services uh, are obviously something that alone wants to see improved. What kinds of services are lacking uh, in the Midlands and nationwide? What kinds of services are alone calling for? So one thing that we've seen um, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 restrictions and and pandemic is that some of the services that would have been there previously haven't reopened at the same scale. So things like daycare centres, um, would pre- some would have been previously open maybe four or five days a week. That has gone down to two, three days a week in some instances. Things like um, social activities, um, some of which would have been organised by people within the community, maybe haven't come back. There's also things like rural transport and those services have seen cuts in funding in recent years. So there's a range of services in that regard. Um, there's also quite simply health services 
And what we find is that um, a lot of the older people we work with are struggling to access their GP, um, might struggle to access occupational therapy, um, a range of health services and mental health services as well is particularly lacking um, for older people. So there's uh, a lot of gaps, I would say, in services yeah. um, that are required by older people um, that we're... We, we link people in with things. Sometimes the waiting lists are just far too long. Okay, and then that uh, prolongs uh, lack of access, uh, which prolongs bad outcomes. And in terms of bad, bad outcomes, I understand research has indicated that, you know, we're talking about loneliness and, and sometimes people can think that, oh, that, 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 that guy up the road, he's just a quiet individual, likes his own company or, or, or whatever it is in a community. But loneliness has been linked to a lot of physical and mental health uh, negative outcomes, hasn't it? Exactly. And this is why it's so important that we look at loneliness as a public health issue. Um, loneliness has been linked to mental health difficulties, depression, um, anxiety. But as well as mental health difficulties, what people mightn't realise is that it's also linked to physical health difficulties, things like Parkinson's, um, diabetes, cancers, strokes, um, a range of negative health outcomes. And it's really important that uh, we maintain our social interaction and our social engagement for our mental health, but also for our physical health. Um, it's something that a lot of people, I suppose, experience the lack of over the COVID pandemic um, when we weren't able to socialise in the same way we were previously. But for some people, that level of isolation has become habitual. It's become kind of baked into their everyday lives. And there are some people, we all have different social needs. There are some people who um, will be more extroverted or introverted. Some people need more social engagement and connection than others. It's a, to- it's a very subjective thing. Um, but it is key that the level of your social relationships, the number of them, the quality of them, that all ties into your experiences of loneliness and isolation. Okay, there's one thing I want to avoid doing here and that's kind of like uh, applying pressure or guilt onto people who live in a community. It's not their responsibility to guarantee the welfare of their fellow citizens, as it were. But by the same token, there's things that can be done to help in that regard. So we'll touch on that shortly. Uh, But just going back to the health outcomes this is one of these situations where if the state can find latitude to invest more uh, in preventing loneliness, then ultimately they could get a virtuous circle here by not having to deal with so many things in terms of the health service because people are going to be healthier if they're less lonely. This is exactly it. I mean, we see there's been so much work done in recent years, things like encouraging physical activity, um, you know, anti-smoking, all of these kind of indicators that um, have an impact on our health. We need to see something similar for loneliness and isolation Um, because, you know, physical inactivity, it's not a health condition and that loneliness isn't a health condition, but they are really key indicators. So we need to see something um, that will specify actions that, that the country can take to prevent and reduce the loneliness and isolation that one in five of us, the European study shows that we feel. It's a very significant number that over 20% of respondents to the survey reported feeling lonely most or all of the time. 
far beyond the European average of 13%. Um, so it's really important that this is something that we work on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and as you say, that 20% figure over one in five or over 20% is national. And if the most alone interventions are happening in the Midlands, we can somewhat assume that the situation could be even worse in this region. Um, And then just to touch on those who have family members they're concerned about, uh, it could be a a long time neighbour or anything like that. What are the kinds of actions that we can actually take that will make a substantial uh, difference to somebody's life and and maybe health? Well, for if there's somebody that you were concerned about, that anybody's concerned about, um, what we would advise generally is reaching out to the person yourself, having a chat with them, uh, calling in for a cup of tea or maybe just making a phone call or sending a text. It could be as simple as those first steps, those small actions that uh, can help you to support somebody. Like you said, it's not uh, something that our communities and people are responsible for the welfare of somebody else but there are still things that we can do to encourage engagement to encourage friendship it's actually beneficial for our own health as well as the people we support so volunteering for example is something that has positive health impacts and it helps us reduce our own isolation and loneliness too and so this is something that really has benefits for everybody. It benefits all of our well-being when we reach out and support other people. Yeah, Grania Lochran there, uh, the Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer uh, with Alone, and she's made some uh, just really telling points and it can weigh heavy on us, I think, sometimes to think of that in such negative terms, but the important thing is that we're aware of it. One in five Irish people say they feel lonely most of the time. Uh, if uh, you've got any thoughts on this, 0833010103 for your perspective on health and fitness. Uh, when we return this evening, we are going to be looking uh, at uh, the issue of the GAA and it amalgamating back within itself uh, the female codes, as it were, of the LGFA and Camogie. It is a serious job of work on their hands, but thankfully, the academic work has already gotten started. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. With the Hearing Consultancy, book a free hearing test at one of our clinics in Clara, Kinnegad, Mullingar or Tullamore and get impartial advice on hearing aids, ear protection, tinnitus health and more. Coming soon to Eden Dairy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. You're very welcome back to Health and Fitness this Friday evening with David Hollywood. Now, we're going to have, I hope, a very interesting conversation. It's something I'm really looking forward to, uh, actually. it's um, We're looking at Gaelic Games, but specifically how the associations existed and how they may exist in the future. Uh, GA has resolved to um, bring into the one uh, grouping Camogie, the Ladies Gaelic Football Association and the Gaelic Games Association. It's not the work of a day uh, by any stretch of the imagination and a lot of groundwork has to go in uh, into creating the space and the the correct pathway uh, to bringing all of these groups uh, together. I'm very glad to say that um, Head of Sport and Health Sciences at TOS Athlone, Dr. Aoife Lane, uh, joins me to look at this particular issue. Uh, Aoife, you've been working specifically through the SHE Research Group at TOS on this m- merger, for want of a less crass expression, Um And I'm looking forward to hearing about your experience with the work. But firstly, uh, you might talk to us about what your relationships personally is with Gaelic Games. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm from Ballandarian in Galway, South Galway. It's a kind of a hurling club, hurling and camogie club. Um, and yeah, I would have played with my club all, all my life and would be kind of engrossed in hurling, really. My, my dad played a little bit as well. So um, it's just been a big part of our lives in terms of on the field. And then as we probably got older, doing bits in the club, you know, whatever it might be, involved in coaching, um, actually set helping to set up a one club, kind of merging our hurling and camogie club actually as well in the last couple of years and, and different roles. So I'd have be involved a little bit then, I suppose, you know, on 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 committees, the dreaded word, um, in the GA kind of games development and, and sports science, and a little bit of involvement as well with the Gaelic Players Association. We we set up the women's version of that uh, seven years ago. So now that's one association. It's it's got ahead of the game, and there's no women's and men's one. There's just a a, a GPA for everybody. So, uh, yeah, deeply embedded in it. As as are Connor and Katie, who are the co-authors on the report. Connor plays football with Tyrone and Katie is an academic in University of Ulster and won several All-Irelands with Kerry Ladies Football, um, as well as pedigree in soccer and, and basketball as well. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're all easily Im- deeply embedded in, in Gaelic games. Well informed, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Connor Myler is um, in TUS with yourself and uh, Dr. Katie Liston uh, in Ulster University. Um, in you mentioned actually there the GPA, which we'll get on to just maybe it's an interesting comparison because they've gone through that uh, that 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 kind of um, they exist as, as as the one umbrella group, as it were, covering uh, men and women. But before that, let's look at what we're talking about in terms of the work. It, it's evident from, say, your personal perspective that. Uh, despite the fact that GAA has a, existed in, in in segregated ways through your life, it's still uh, been an environment that's been welcoming enough to you to become an important uh, part of your life. So I suppose before we move on to what needs to be done, there's a degree or there's something that needs to be acknowledged and preserved here, and that's that Gaelic Games it does have a broader good for the community, even as it as it has been consisted of. Oh, you're, it's a really good point, and and I'm glad you've you've. Um kind of spotted it and and flag, flagged it. Yeah, like the J is the biggest community and sporting organization in Ireland, you know, by far. And it's in all of our clubs and all of our communities. And especially at club level, when you're a member of your club, you probably don't really see, you know, in most instances, I hope there's there's exceptions, but but few where you're just probably part of the one club really by default. You know, it's it's very parochial, it's very local. Um, so it doesn't really matter who's wearing the jersey, whether it's a, a, a 15 year old or a 25 year old boy or girl, there tends to be that feeling of being part of one and the same thing. So you are very welcome in your local club. I, I think there are still nuances there that in some instances you might, the girls might, you know, years ago, not as much now, might still maybe find it harder to get pitches to train on or maybe might have had as much funding in their side of the house than they would have in the, in the other side, in the men's side. Um, sometimes as well, maybe the coaches, you know, the really experienced coaches will will filter over to the boys a little bit. So there are nuances there that a lot of the time we didn't even really notice and we just got on with it. But I think what's really good now is people are identifying that and naming that. And it's resolving itself without an awful lot of fuss in most cases, because, as I said, your default mode in your club is is your part of it all. And. I think it's something I've noticed a lot of a lot of even females in Gaelic games would would acknowledge themselves as GA people. And they talk about the GA, even though they're actually members and they play Camogie and Ladies football. So, um, you know, they're, it's it's not it's it's very nuanced. And I think because it's because it's so localized and so deeply embedded in, in our in our lives. Um, 
and that filtered up nationally for me. I suppose I just managed to, you know, be involved in, in GA initiatives, but also bits with Camogie and Ladies Football as well. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The doors have never been closed at all. Um, but maybe there's a lot of coincidences that have led that for me to happen for me. And I would just like that it's the same for, for every girl and woman who's involved, whether it's playing, coaching, being a referee, being an administrator, that, you know, it, the doors are always open everywhere. Yeah, that's a great point uh, to finish on that particular uh, part of our conversation is that there's many uh, a person who can testify to the good of the Gaelic Games Association and, and how much it's helped them. But if there's ways that it can be improved, then it, it needs to be looked at because as an association on a on a community participation level, if you make tweaks to it or changes to it that improve how it interacts with the community, that's a really powerful tool considering how far reaching, as you've been saying, Gaelic Games is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably an overwhelming message of this piece, even though there's a, there's a, there seems like a lot of change proposed in what we've presented here. You know, a new organization for Gaelic Games, looking at kind of representation of females, which, which, which is cautious, is looking at a funding model. The important things will stay the same and, you know, our games and our values and all a new association would do is nurture those, you know, a little bit, making sure they're reinforced, enhanced and they're supported, they're emphasized. And so we have to see the opportunity within to do the things that we do kind of naturally better and to safeguard them rather than getting focused on maybe changes that have to happen structurally or at national level. Those are big decisions and it takes a lot of courage to do that. But I think that's within that's within the grasp of all those people who are kind of leading those, that decision making piece. In terms of the work that you guys did, then you've got five recommendations. Um, mm. Do you want to talk us through what they are? And then we might talk about how uh, a group like the She Research Group goes about getting there, because I, f- I think that's a pretty interesting one from the process yeah. perspective. Yeah. So the first one is to plan for the full process. So we've learned from our studies that a merger can happen two organizations will come together and a date might be set for that and agreement around it but to deliver on everything that that organization promises might take up to at least five years if not beyond after that point so what we're saying is we really want to plan for the full integration process so that there's accountability and patience and pragmatism built into that whole piece Um, i guess you know we the second one is around having a principle and value-led process like the already the steering group for integration have, have, have stated the principle of equality. You know, we haven't come up with that. That's there. So that's a very strong principle. But you also need really strong, reflexive, transformational leadership. You need, you know, a serious amount of communication, bottom up, top down, um, you know, to ensure there's good transparency and that everybody owns and feels involved in this process. And there's, there's a lot of strategic thinking involved here as well. There's an opportunity here to become this will be the biggest thing that will ever happen, Gaelic Games, you know, beyond when they were founded. You know, it is that transformational and we can be really strategic about that, what that presents. Um, in terms of values, I suppose there's a lot of respect and trust needed. The three organisations have huge legacies. There's been amazing people involved in them. We really need to look after that and respect that and the people who work within those units. You know, they've, they've done incredible work there too. Um, the third um uh, recommendation is around a funding model based on equity. So you've noticed in the report that the revenue profile of, of the GA is up on 96 million. It's probably less than 10 for the two women's combined. So mm. 
that impacts investment on the ground. It has to, you know. So there's a gap to close around, you know, equity of investment in 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 women and girls in Gaelic games, and we would have to work towards that. Um, there's a lot of complications there, and it would be tricky. But funding models will need to be built because it could be a big challenge to integration. Um, female representation is important. Equality is best delivered when there's thirty percent females, you know, around the table. And if you're not there, you don't have a voice. So we would like that kind of representation piece to be yes at national level but right down to club level you know this needs to be across the whole system to make sure that that equality piece delivers upon it and, and the last recommendation is really about building a new association for Gaelic games and new in terms of it needing new structures maybe new operations well it has to if it's going to now include another 400,000 members you know in terms of so whether there's a new name there or not is up for debate. And what we've loved over the last day or two is that there has been debate. You know, people actually are emotive about this and they care. And we need that to happen because this will have an impact. So that's that's what we've set out. We don't want to be prescriptive. And mm. so, you know, they're, they're there for people to consider. They're there. We want to be constructive and I suppose to help and to support and give, I suppose, provoke this sort of a conversation around um, what of those things and what parts of those things or what those things might look like in a Gaelic Games context. So just to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned there, Aoife, and um, the first, the po- I just I wanted to confirm then, you mentioned in terms of quotas of female representation, and, and this goes all the way down to the, the, the local clubs, as it were, mm-hmm. is 30% the perceived threshold for effective representation when it comes to this yeah. type of thing? Yeah, there's a little bit of literature on that, that you need 30%. Now, to be fair, Sport Ireland are looking for 40% on national leadership management groups. Yeah. And they've really gone hard on that. They're miles behind generally in a lot of sport, yeah. sports, aren't well, they? Well, it's, it's 20% in the J. I think it's up on 50, 60 in Camoganese football. So the J in soccer and rugby have a bit of catching up to yeah. do. And I think there's a bit of an accountability piece at the end of this year if it's not delivered upon. So you know, 40% is fair play and I commend Sport Ireland, but I suppose 30% has been seen as 30% men, 30% women, and then 40% then can be either almost, you know, so it's it's kind of a minimum representation um, that we'd be looking for. Okay. So we wouldn't have it, you know, actually at club level, I've done a little bit of very light analysis myself. Clubs are all right. Clubs are probably hitting that far off it. Yeah. In most clubs, people would look around the table and see a, a female involved, whether it's as treasurer, secretary, PRO. They don't tend to be a lot of female chairpersons. And I think that's indicative and that's something we need to work on too. Yeah. Um, there's, I suppose, historically specific roles that have been reserved yeah, for the yeah. um, quote unquote patriarchy. Um, yeah. The funding equity is interesting as well. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sadly, I'm running out of time massively here. So um, okay. we'll, we'll touch on this and maybe another point after that. Obviously, re- generating revenue uh, from the LGFA and Camogie Association's perspective uh, is relatively challenging based on uh, certain limitations. But if we're talking about the one group, then the um, revenue streams of the GAA generally uh, are inevitably going to be better shared in that respect. And that could be a huge um, change for, for the yeah. women's side of Gaelic Games in terms of its financial support. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, I suppose we're cautious here because neither of us are accountants or economists or anything, you know, on that. So I think we've we've probably put that out there, but we know that that, that will need thought by the people involved. And I think what we do know is that first recommendation about this taking time will need to be considered there. Um, it'll be very hard overnight to say that we're just going to split this 
50-50. And, you know, as you've identified, change, the change there will be massive. Yeah. So, um, but ultimately, to be clear, what we do want is equality of investment, you know, but equity, yes, means money, but it also means things like sharing the coaches out around the club more openly and um, sharing the pitches more equally and openly. So it's not just around that financial hard cash. It's around the things we do making that more equitable across a club or a county setting that there's equal kind of um, support for, for boys and girls, males and females within that. And there's so much work in what we're talking about here and just that one element, say the um, uh, divvying up of, of the funding streams and so on and the revenue streams uh, could go on for decades if um, if it yeah. was allowed to. Yeah. So like you say, planning for the integration process, such a key first step. I'm going to bring it back to a personal perspective to finish up uh, our conversation, Aoife, and that's um, your experience doing work with something like She Research Group, uh, working on something like Gaelic Games on a, on a fundamentally important point or change for them. Uh, on a professional, personal level, there must be great investment that you put into it and, and you must get a great deal out of something like that. Yeah, yeah, we've got a great research group. We've three streams. We've sport performance, we've exercise and health, and we've nutrition and health. And we've got probably about 20 researchers and about 20 PhD students and a postdoctoral student within that. So it's very much a team effort, and we all get a massive buzz out of it. You're so right. Um, we've got projects running on, you know, fitness, strength, and speed for team sport athletes in Gaelic Games. We've got stuff on menopause, stuff on the menstrual cycle. So there's a huge, huge reward in research, as there is in teaching. And, you know, we are more than happy to share that. So this for me, yeah, it's, it's my piece and it's Connor's piece mostly. It's not mine at all. He's the PhD student, um, but it's lovely to be involved in that. The PhD students make it all happen. And, you know, we, we kind of supervise and work around that. So it is it's a great unit and we are delighted with outputs like this that are very public facing, you know, and that's one of our goals in, in She is that we have public facing outputs as well as you know, those academic papers we have to write and those academic conferences. So this is our new way forward in terms of being much more public facing and how we we disseminate our work. Yeah, of course, so much of uh, academia is hidden behind academia to a certain degree. (laughs) So it is great to be able to bring something forward like this and a big amount of credit to Conor Myler, Dr. Katie Liston and yourself, Dr. Aoife Lane, who's Head of Sport and Health Sciences at TOS Athlone. Really enjoyed our discussion here. I wish you the very best um, with, you know, uh, how this um, merging of the Gaelic Games Association, the Camogie Association and the Ladies Gaelic Football Association uh, goes. Uh, Commendations on the work so far and we'll catch up with you down the line. Thanks, David. Lovely to chat. Yeah, that was Dr. Aoife Lane. She's the Head of Sport with Health and Health Sciences at uh, TUS uh, Athlone. So best of luck uh, to everybody working on that. Uh, next, uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, Lockery and um, the RNLI uh, keeping people uh, safe this summer and after that as well. If you've got a kid or a child, I suppose we're supposed to call them, and you're considering getting them up on a horse, then you might want to stay tuned as well. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. I'm looking at the weather forecast for the next nine days straight it does not go below 20 degrees and being Irish we're very likely uh, to seek out a body of water one of the most popular spots will be uh, Loch Ree 
uh, in the Midlands. I'm very glad to say that the uh, Lockery RNLI press officer Tom McGuire uh, joins me this evening. Uh, Tom, we're going to be talking about your boathouse, about an open day and all of that. But I wanted to give people listening at home a sense of uh, what it is you guys do first. So uh, maybe tell me first and foremost about um, the amount of people in uh, the history of the RNLI at Lockery, the amount of people that have um, been helped by interventions from your group. Yeah, there are 40 volunteers, David, at Lockery, and thank you for having us this evening. And over the last 11 years, because that's how long we've been there, we're one year in our new boathouse, and we've been called out 500 times and gone to the assistance of about 1,500 people. Okay, so it's a a substantial amount of people, and obviously when people need help, it's to varying uh, degrees in terms of seriousness, but uh, ultimately you never know just how serious a situation could have been if you weren't there to intervene. No, well, that's true. And we say at RNLI that no one goes out on a day to call an emergency service or that RNLI might be the people they will finish up with at the end of their day. But that's why we are there, 365 days, 24 hours every day. And we are there to save lives on the water. But more importantly, maybe to suggest to people who go out to take the proper precautions that Prevention is the best solution to all of this, so that if people go on open water, if they go swimming, that colour, I think, is a key, Mm. that you wear something colourful, you wear a colourful hat, you wear a colourful balloon if you're swimming, you always take a buoyancy aid if you're in a kayak or on a stand-up paddleboard, and if you're on a boat, you follow the navigation instructions, but you always let someone know where you're going, how long you will be, and when you will get back and always keep a communications aid with you, a phone or a radio or something to get back in touch with someone else should you need assistance. Okay, there's some really good pieces of advice there and we might uh, repeat them before we clock off uh, this evening, Tom. Uh, Let's talk about the boathouse. Uh, This was something that uh, the group were looking for for some time. We've just hit the first anniversary of uh, the Lockery Boathouse. How have you found it's helped over the last 12 months? It's been brilliant. It's been brilliant in terms of training, of access to the water. It cost 1.2 million euro. And locally from Offaly and Westmead, from Longford and Roscommon, and from all of the community, national and international, who passed through the Shannon waterways, who contributed to this. And the, and the people all around Ireland and the UK who contributed to, to the RNLI. That's what made up that money and gave us the facility we have. But it has allowed us to respond, to train, because the people who go out to save lives on the water need to be trained. And they have, they have weekly training sessions and they are really well trained in terms of casualty care, of navigation and of towing and of aid to the people who may get into trouble on the water. What about the volunteers that are um, now, as you say, being trained at the boathouse and who are now operating from uh, within that uh, and being sent out on calls or or whatever it is? It must help, I imagine, with the sense of self-investment when you're volunteering to now have a facility that really merits the amount of time and the sacrifice that the volunteers make. Well, I think a really good example of we were in temporary accommodation, which were literally trailers or prefabs for 10 years Mm. and people came out responded to the call and then typically on the boat there would be three to four people responding to each call and you were on the boat you weren't and you went home now if people come out they can sit and engage 
They wait for the boat to come back. They're there to give more assistance. They're prepared to bond and to begin to grow. And we've been really lucky that we can welcome because we have a really wonderful organised service on Loch Derg as well on the southern side of, of, of your franchise area in Midlands 103. Mm. And we, we've been able to welcome them to a facility in the middle of Ireland that is there as as a resource for everyone who wants to help others for our charity. Okay, you're going to have to tell us about this open day then. Uh, Many people, as I said at the top of our conversation, are likely to be heading for maybe a bit of a dip or a swim or a paddle. And if they're anywhere near Lockery tomorrow, they can actually head up to the boathouse. Tell us about it. Yeah, we're open from 11 o'clock until 4 o'clock tomorrow. And it's a chance to say thank you to all of the people who have been so supportive of everything we have done over the last decade or more. And particularly in the last year when, when they contributed to that. So we open at 11. At 12 o'clock, the boat will launch. But obviously, if a shout comes in or if we're called out, the boat will go at any particular time. Mm. But it being a quiet day, and it's unlikely it will be because we have about 50 shouts per year, and we've had about four already in the last 10 days, that the boat will be there. The crew will launch. They'll show the capabilities of the boat. It will come back in around 2 o'clock. But there are opportunities for people to see the boat hall, to see the crew room, to see the training facility, to visit the RNLI shop where there's wonderful merchandise that particularly young people and children are really interested in. I was just going to say, for for kids, this this stuff is cool, isn't it? Oh, this is brilliant, you know, and and they have a, a chance to take memorabilia home and little cards and pictures and pins. We have some face painting and for the adults who need a refreshing cup of tea or coffee, we have that as well. Okay, so there's loads to look forward to there. We're clocks against us here, Tom. So I'll just uh, point out again uh, some of the messages you said. um, Bright clothing, if uh, you're heading out on the water, uh, make sure that you're bringing a a buoyancy aid of some description. And if you're out on boats yourself, that you've got communications devices to relay whatever you need to. And don't go alone. And don't go alone. Uh, Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time this evening and uh, best of luck with the Open Day uh, tomorrow and everything going forward. David, thanks for your support and thanks for talking this evening. That was Tom McGuire, Lockery RNLI Press Officer. We are heading to the horses next and uh, I know it's really, uh, we mentioned children and their interest in something like the Open Day. Uh, This might be well up their street as well. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. It's time to head to a Midlands club with Chloe Farrell. She's been talking to the owner and manager of Anna, Anna Harvey Farm in Tullamore. That's Sam Deverell. And in case you needed it, uh, let's get a definition from Sam about what we're talking about here. Horse riding is basically horse riding is basically when somebody gets onto a horse and puts their legs over it and rides around the place. Um, there's many different ways to tar- horse ride, but you can be from beginners right up to a sporting level, and there's competitions, and uh, then horses can be used for transport, uh, like uh, getting from A to B back in the old days, and uh, for work like driving carts and ploughing and looking after cattle and stuff. Just to go back to horse riding then, what are the different styles that you can have? 
there are many, many different styles and ways of portraying. So you've got dressage, which is a bit like gymnastics, where you have a, a slow routine and you get marked on it. That's how you do that when there's a horse and rider. Show jumping is where they go into an arena and they have a course of obstacles for the jump over and they knock down a pole, it's false. So the person who does the least poles knocked down does the best. You have eventing, which is like a horse triathlon. They do vaulting, which is a bit like gymnastics for the rider on top of the horse. Uh, there's leisure riding, like which is just riding on beaches or riding around the fields. You've got horse riding, horse racing, I should say. And then in the US, they have got like Western riding, which are cowboys, which are looking after cattle and stuff. It's like motor racing. There's many different versions and styles that you can do. Just in terms of dressage and, say, show jumping, what kind of prep is involved with it? I know you couldn't just get up on a horse. Is there developing a relationship with the horse and person? Oh, yeah. Well, so it was from a sporting context. It's years of preparation. So when you see the top guys jumping in the RDS, like the horses are going to be between 10 and 17 or 18 years old. So they'll have put like the horses born, they usually start riding it around when they're three or four years old. And then between four and 10, preparing it to get it up to that level. And so from 10 years on, so it's like years and years of preparation and work. In the years of preparation, I'm sure usually there will be a couple of stumbles and trips. And what would be your main advice then for someone who's had a fall and they're not sure of what to do after that? was like all sports, you do get setbacks as you go along. One is the relationship you have with your horse. This will get a, a good trainer. That's a good person who is experienced in, in, in uh, training people and horses. Uh, to give you advice and help to improve your, your skill and uh, I suppose, regain your confidence and stuff like that. When people think of horse riding, they assume that it's something that's just kind of easy. You sit up on a horse, but that's not the case. What impact would that have on your body in terms of health and fitness? What, what would you need to develop? Right. For, well, I suppose for horse riding, it's, it's like all sports. There's, there's, a, there's very easy levels. So when you're starting out, you're only doing a walking around the place and trotting. So in regards to exercise, I suppose it's good for your your central core. You're 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 moving a lot of muscles within your your torso and, and your legs. It's not like running where you're getting really fit. It's more like you're you're holding yourself in a position and and building up like core strength and stuff like that. Um, there the was the the way it, it regards exercise. Um, and it will be a low impact thing, provided you don't fall off. That the you're the, it's not a it's not hard on your body. Now saying that over time, say when you get to be more advanced in it, then your your skills improve. You're doing faster, stronger stuff. And when you get to the level where you're like a, a racehorse jockey, like they are one of the, some of the fittest athletes there is around. You know so. And just to bring it back then to Anna Harvey, what kind of services do you provide there? Right, so we provide horse riding lessons from beginners right up to advanced level. Um, we we do we have an indoor and outdoor arenas, and we have a farm to ride over here, and we have about eighty horses on the farm. And uh, we provide equestrian holidays. We have people that come from Europe and US to stay on holidays and stay with us. Uh, we also provide uh, boarding for, or live, as we call it, for people who have their own horses but want, have nowhere to keep it. We look after them for them. Uh, we're also a competition centre, so we have the arenas for doing dressage and jumping and, and those sort of competitions. 
um, they're the kind of uh, you know, services we provide for our clients. And with the indoor versus the outdoor arena, is there much of a difference to what's provided in it other than a roof over it or not? It, there's no, it's the same surface. It's an all-weather surface, uh, sand and fibre. And uh, I suppose you have the, the indoor arena for when you want to ride when the weather is uh, more Irish winter in climate conditions when the rain is going sideways. It's not, it's horses don't like, like like ourselves, don't like to be out in the rain, wind and the rain, and it's just much nicer to ride inside. Now saying that, if you're in this sort of weather, outside is much nicer. So you're in the outdoor arena gets plenty of use this kind of wet, this kind of wet, sunny weather in the summer. We also seen that you have this thing in place where you can do horse riding lessons mixed with English classes. How does that work? We've a lot of people who come from Europe. Uh, we have uh, students that come from mainly uh, Scandinavia, uh, Italy, Germany and places like that where they, they come and stay a week with us. And they're usually people who want to who can ride but want to improve their English so they come out and uh, they stay with us for usually a week and they they do about two hours riding each day and they do two hours English lessons for, for you know when they want to stay here um, mainly students so they, yeah it's a really good time they really enjoy themselves it's a bit like us going off to Spain or something like that to learn Spanish and doing kayaking or something like that so they still have that to do horse riding and stuff like that is it something that there was a big market for? Like, did somebody get in contact with you to come up with this idea, or how did you decide? Uh, this is something that's sort of uh, it's sort of within the equestrian sphere for people doing holidays. It's something that's been going on. Well, we've been doing it uh, since we started, which is twenty five years ago now. So it's always been something. Um, horse, or say children who uh, have an equestrian experience want to combine their writing skills and then want to learn a new language. We got we get we've had them for the last twenty five years coming. They're sort of sort of a traditional horses and language learning seems to be uh, seem to sit well together. Very good. And uh, so you mentioned there that you do beginners lessons and more advanced lessons. Yeah. But would you provide say a family day out or who would it kind of suit? What, no, wouldn't we don't do like days out. We we are here to train people to learn to horse ride. So we do like usually if we had beginners, they would start off on one to one lessons until they have the basic skills. You know, because when you're on a horse, uh, it requires you know you have to learn skills control the horses. Uh, it's like riding a motorbike. You know, then if you you have to have the right motor skills and communication between you and the horse um, to improve your skills so um, it's best not to for those who can't you know if you want to learn to ride you get learn to ride and then maybe later on when when you're better improved on your skills then it would be days out and stuff like that would be more suitable and with that kind of getting your confidence around a horse how important are the safety aspects then that way yeah, well, I suppose you could say horse riding would be a high-risk sport. Uh, you know, uh, you are getting onto an animal, like some of them are up to, they could be up to five foot six high, so your, your legs are over that, and your like, horses can make their own um, decisions sometimes. Like, it's a, a riding a horse is not like a motorbike where you press accelerator to go. You're kind of, a, it's more of a, a communication between yourself and the horse instructing asking the horse to do something and hoping that well not hoping that they should do it but 
Not always does that happen. Uh, but should we say if you go to a, a good place who has well trained horses, um, you know it's it, it's per, it's perfectly fine. It's very good, safe sport. It's uh, and really enjoyable. And I suppose just my last question there. Can you just give a bit of detail for your own background into horses? So I well we we're in business twenty five years, but even before that, uh, we've been, I myself have been riding. Uh, we did show jumping when I was a kid and. Uh, later on, we went. I did eventing, so I've ridden at the international level in eventing, and uh, sort of retired from that now. And then I've gone into more into um, uh, officiating as uh, competitions. So I would look after eventing competitions, and I've done that up to international level. Um, I've done it in the UK at Badminton and Burley and places like that, and as far as way as uh, New Zealand. Um, and I suppose. What's happening now is my daughter was 13 now. She's moving up and she's quite good at dressage and she's done a few international competitions. She's been successful at that. So hopefully this summer our aim is to go to the European Dressage Championships in Germany. So that's the kind of the background of where we are in, our, in the horse business. So I'm sure it's definitely a couple of names that we should be listening out for in the future anyway. Please, Guardian, and it was a bit of luck, and uh, we should do should do okay. Thank you, Chloe Farrell, talking to Sam Deverell, the owner and manager of Anna, Anna Harvey Farm in Tullamore. Health and fitness with David Hollywoods in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Midlands 10.